Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with two wonderful human beings. I am here with Amanda Winter and Matt Swartz. And Matt is our senior editor for Expedition Portal. And it is so great to have both of you on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. It's exciting to be here too. Yeah, totally. (laughs) There are some fun things for us to talk about today because you two lived on the road full time for about three years and you've also traveled extensively. I also want to talk about your paragliding passion and we'll talk a little bit about photography and leave no trace and some of the other things that you guys have learned as travelers. So before we get started, this episode is made possible in part by Red Arc Electronics, Australia's premier manufacturer of electric vehicle brake controllers, in-vehicle dual battery chargers, vehicle management systems, gauges, and monitors. And I have personally used Red Arc products for three crossings of Australia, including the full length of the Canning Stock route and all the way to the tip of Tasmania and back. This included using their electronic brake controllers for a crossing of the Great Australia. Australian Bite and their Manager 30 system for multiple crossings of Oceania. For more information, visit redarkelectronics.com. Matt and I would like to do a quick call out to Nakoda and Sonia Staples from Staples and Tents and Black People Off-Road. We started working with them. They've been helping us with our testing parameters for the Overland Journal tests. Uh, They both work in the technical fields, the scientific fields. So they've been very helpful for us to start to create some repeatability and testing standards around our equipment. Um, They also have a very cool Instagram and YouTube channel as well. You can find them on YouTube as Staples Intense and on Instagram as Staples Intense and as Black People Off-Road. So just a quick call out to amazing folks and Matt's rocking the shirt right now. Very cool. And then I also just got uh, a really thoughtful gift from my friends at the X Overland. So that is Clay and Rochelle Croft. Uh, they just sent me a very cool 10-year anniversary wall art. It's just awesome. Talks about all of their adventures around the world. So um, we are big fans of what Clay and Rochelle do uh, with their family and their team. Very high quality, authentic content uh, with a lot of consideration around just being good humans when they travel as well. So thanks Clay and Rochelle for sending that really thoughtful gift over to us. We're excited to see what you guys do in 2021. Let's get started with some questions. The thing that always comes to mind for folks is how do you make a living on the road? And I think that that would be a really interesting thing to talk about. Amanda, kind of share what it is that you do and how you're able to do that from the road and make a living while you travel? Sure. So I, it was a little bit of a journey to get where I am today, but I currently am a copywriter. I help sustainable minded brands who are also usually planet obsessed, tell their sustainability stories. So I use their words. Usually it's a lot of digital copy. So websites, email, other types of um, online copy. And I help them speak to consumers who care about these kinds of things, who care about the planet and who care about sustainability. Yeah. That's, it's very cool to see the brands that you work with and you had quite some time with YouTube before you hit the road. How many years did you work with YouTube? Yeah. So I was, I, Matt and I both kind of met and we can get into that later, but in both of us were in California. And so I was at YouTube for about three years as well. Um, I was on the marketing team there. And so I did learn a lot about consumer marketing and email marketing and how YouTube works, but it's also been a little while and YouTube has grown and it's been cool to see those projects develop since I've been there. Well, you've already been so helpful for us <laughs> trying to learn how learn the YouTubes. So uh, we were, thank you you, Amanda, for all of your advice. It really means a lot. So when you hit the road, what did you see that changed noticeably about how you work? What kind of little hacks did you learn that helped you be effective and focused while you were had that beautiful view right out the vehicle's window, right? It's really hard. And to be fully uh, transparent, we were not working um, full-time in the way that you might work full-time sitting at an office. A big motivation behind us going on the road was to be able to control our time more and be flexible with the way that we did work. And so, yeah, I wouldn't say we were working 40 hours a week. Like that was not part of what we wanted for our adventure, but there are definitely tools you can use to make it a little easier to work from the road. And I've learned over the last couple of years, first off, obviously internet is a huge struggle and issue that you're going to want to think about going on the road. Service, the deeper you get, the service obviously isn't out there right sure. now, at least. Um, I think there are some possibilities coming in the future around that, but right now it's not there. So you have to prioritize where you're going to be. If you have meetings, especially meetings on video, you need really good connection. 
And so that's a consideration to take. It's probably a good idea to make sure that you're in a, a town before, before, well before the meeting, right? <laughs> yes, sure. well before the meeting to make sure things are working well. And as things start to open up again, one of our go-tos used to be libraries. Libraries tend to have really, really good internet and are free. So you yeah. can go there and use it, but that can also be hard if you need to talk a lot. Um, just be like planning around that is probably one of the biggest concerns you'll have going on the road. Even if you have tools like multiple different ways to access cell service, you're still mm. going to have to think about that. So I'd say that's the, the first one that comes to mind for me. It was interesting, even here in Prescott, uh, right downtown, very close to where you guys are right now and where my home is there. It's got a coffee shop inside the inside the library. And they actually have these little cubicles that you can work in. It makes it very efficient to do that. I noticed that a lot of people that travel full time, they tend to have like a, a gym membership that's available like a planet fitness or something like that. So you can get access to a shower and you can get access to a regular workout routine. And then maybe you're right. Maybe it's the library solution that can oftentimes get you that better connectivity. Yeah. I mean, coffee shops are obviously a go-to too, but um, it's just the connectivity can really, really widely vary. Yes. Um, Libraries, sometimes you can also book like private rooms. And so that's a good thing to, I don't know if there's like a good way to find that other than just searching the town you're in, but they sometimes have little private rooms you can book. Like conference rooms and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting though right now, because obviously with COVID nomads, digital nomads, people who are traveling and work remotely don't necessarily have the same access that they had previously to those resources. So, and again, full transparency, you know, right now we've been renting a room in Denver. We've been living with Amanda's sister, Shannon, who's been a a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful person to live with. We've had some more stability, which has helped us kind of get to the point that we're at now. And Amanda talked about it before when you asked, you know, we were working, I would say much more part-time when we first got on the road. And that was because we really wanted to kind of get back to some of our Mm. passions and getting on the road was a way to cut our overheads that we didn't have to work as much. We could Mm. play a little bit more, but yeah, kind of touching on some of those hacks too. I mean, I think having structure is still really important, you know, especially for uh, being productive. So sometimes like picking a portion of the day that you're going to work and that can be helpful for accomplishing things on the road. Because as you mentioned, you always have that temptation of what's just outside the window or outside of the door of your vehicle. And often for people that go on the road full time, you do it to be in beautiful places. Sure. So, you know, when you're boondocking in Sedona and you're looking at the Red Rock Canyon right outside can sometimes be difficult to find the motivation to sit down in front of your computer for four hours and knock out a bunch of work. So yeah, you, I guess after a while it starts to make more sense. I mean, I find that even like I was riding a motorcycle solo up through South America and at first I was trying to work a little bit every day and that just did not work well. So I found if I booked a hotel that I knew had reliable internet, or if I was going to a city that would have a good hotel with reliable internet, then I would just stop for an entire day and maybe work 16 hours that day. So I'm in a hotel room, which is just like any other hotel room in the world. And I'm not distracted by the historical places or these beautiful roads or the beach or whatever else. And I just would lock myself down, get a bunch of work done, and then get back into travel mode. And for me, that really helped. I don't find that I do well with parsing out the days like that. Um, Other than just basic email communication and text communication, I can keep that up. But I do find that I need to stop and get out of traveler mode, get my head wrapped around the fact that I'm just in this cubicle in a sense and get that work done. Has has that worked for you guys where you'd stop the camper and then kind of focus on that? Or how did you deal with that even working part-time? I mean, certainly I think, especially with creative work, it can be easier to allow yourself that time to kind of get in the groove and then stick with it. And so, so like you're saying, I remember we talked about this, you know, I think sometimes it is easier to just set aside days or blocks of days, Mm. you know, maybe say to yourself, well, I'm traveling full time. So I have the flexibility to take whatever days off I want. So I'm going to work for the next two days while the weather's a little mediocre, Sure, get a bunch of stuff done. And then once the weather gets nice, then I'm going to go and take a couple days off and you have that fluidity in your schedule. And that's part of the beauty of working this way. It is maintaining the flexibility, listening to ourselves too, right? I'm definitely a work until 1am kind of person. If I force myself to get up early, I'm already 
not happy about that program. So it affects my creativity and I have trouble focusing. And I think that I personally do better sprinting creatively. So if I'm engaged in a topic or if I'm even writing a big article for Overland Journal, I may do 12 hours a day for five or six days in a row and then take some time off to recoup and get back that kind of recharge that creative juice. So, but then there are, you read about other writers like Stephen King and other writers that'll just, they'll sit down, they have a block of time, they close the door and they do that every day. And it is very much formulaic for them. And my mind doesn't work that way. I'm not sure how my mind works actually, (laughs) but it doesn't work that way (laughs) for sure. I think it's a combination of both for me too. Like there are deadlines that really exist. And Mm -hmm. even if I'm not feeling creative that day, I still need to sit down and get a messy first draft out there and have it to edit later. And so that's definitely something I do and have learned. And I think especially now that we've gotten into paragliding, a lot of times you can paraglide in the morning and then work like in the afternoon or evening or vice versa if it's better for an evening flight. And so I've been able to find ways where I'm like, if I get this to this point, like I'll be able to paraglide later today or I'm going flying. I'm (laughs) soaring this afternoon. Exactly. Well, that's a good segue. I think we should talk about the paragliding thing for a little bit. So that is a relatively recent passion for you too. What inspired you to jump off a perfectly good mountain (laughs) and and trust the thermals and a fabric wing to your life? Yeah. Well, I mean, as so many things these days do, it comes back to our time traveling full time on the road. Um, So this was, what what year was this? 2018? 2018? I can't, 17 or 18. It was the first, what was the first year we did the van life gathering? It was 2018, right? I think so. <laughs> okay. So we were in Jackson, Wyoming, and we were running a van life meetup uh, with some friends of ours uh, who run a social account called Van Life Diaries, which it's got a fairly large following. And Amanda was like, we're traveling full time. We should get involved with the community more. We should run an event. So we actually hosted an event in Wyoming, or excuse me, it was in Idaho, but uh, just on the other side of the Tetons. One of the couples that came to our event were paragliding instructors and tandem paragliding pilots. They basically made us an offer we couldn't refuse <laughs> to go and fly at Jackson uh, wow. at the ski hill. Yeah, we said, we've got to do it because it's a fairly expensive thing to do. So we went, we took them up on it. We got a, a great deal and we flew off of the ski mountain. I mean, we landed and I remember being like, I need to learn how to do this. <laughs> yeah. So when you, when you flew that first time, you were tandemed up with this other pilot. Yeah. Yes. Both of us were. So we flew at the same time, but had like, we wow. were attached to another pilot. So we didn't do any of the piloting. Right. We're just riding and, and enjoying the view. Sure. Yeah. It's kind of like skydiving, you know, they don't just like say, go for it. You know, this, <laughs> like these sports are high consequences if you do something wrong. So, yeah. so you basically, yes, you go with someone who's qualified, who knows what they're doing. You have they to have read lots the, of training. You have to read the instructions. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a fairly unforgiving sport if <laughs> yeah, you miss sure. something. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, you know, it was incredible. It's not the adrenaline fueled experience that maybe some people might think it would be, or at least it, it wasn't for, for me, you know, I found it very relaxing. It's, it feels slow. It's not, you're not, you know, free falling. You're gradually running off a, a slope and then mm-hmm. you're in the air and it's just about silent and you're going maybe 20 to 30 miles an hour. And mm-hmm. so you've got this light breeze on your face and I mean, you're, you're flying. <laughs> it's, That's incredible. Yeah. It's just wild. So, yeah, um, and is that the high point of it for you, Amanda, like, like that sense of flying or what is it that you find makes you want to go do it again, jump off another mountain? <laughs> well, like Matt was saying, I think when I did the tandem, oh, I had, I had done a tandem skydive as well. And that is very adrenaline fueled. It's like, holy yeah. crap, I'm jumping out of a plane and like, <laughs> you're going not, very I fast. I've not, not done that yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you do both, you'll see, at least for me, it was a very different experience. Mm. I didn't land and say like, oh, I want to go learn that tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but with like, Par- I'm glad I survived. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, that was crazy. Cause you get, a, I think the adrenaline rush of skydiving, even tandem is just crazy. And that was not the same for paragliding, but it was similar to Matt. I felt like it was relaxing, which then I learned being a pilot, that is definitely not the case all the time. And it's not relaxing as a pilot yourself. But just the the speed of it, being able to fly above places, fly above a peak mm-hmm. and look around and look down and see animals or a view that you can't see any other yeah. way. I mean, you could see it in a small aircraft, but having the wind literally on your face, it's just being immersed in nature in a very different way, but also that isn't as adrenaline packed as skydiving. A lot of people do both do skydiving and paragliding, but for me, paragliding only. <laughs> I, I wonder 
how much, I mean, I think about for myself that I try to look for these activities that are a little more analog, um, where you're, you can't use your phone to read email or to check text messages or, you know, hopefully not getting on Instagram or whatever. But it seems like when you're trying to fly a paraglider that you're not distracted by those things. You're probably not even thinking about them at all. Has that been your experience? It's like an escape, that mental disconnect from the digital world, your digital lives that you live as creatives too. Yeah. I mean, I think especially it depends on your skill level. So, and the conditions, um, which we're still both very new in learning and the conditions can get really, really extreme. That's a big part is learning how to read weather and learn about the environment in a deeper way than I've ever had a chance to learn. But I think I'm just focusing on what I'm doing in that moment. It very, very much can be, if you get into a flow state and um, base what you're doing off feeling, or there are some small instruments you use. So potentially based off of signals from the instruments, but basically like, am I entering wind that's lifting me up? Which where's that wind coming from? Like, how do I enter into that? How does it feel on my hands as I'm piloting this piece of nylon? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those, like any more complex activity that you can learn to do when you initially start doing it, just a fairly simple task can occupy a very big part of your brain's ability to, to comprehend what's going on and to make decisions that are smart or logical. And paragliding is very much like that, you know, like at our point where we're less than a year in, it's a very, very big part of our ability just to fly the glider safely away from the hill, fly it through the air safely and land safely. And the longer you do it, you know, you start to see pilots who are capable of doing much more than just flying. And it's really incredible to see. And I think, you know, that's one of the most interesting things about this sport. Doing a tandem flight, you have no concept of what's going on. It feels so laid back. It feels so fun and relaxing. The second you're the pilot and there's no one else to make sure you get to the ground safely, it changes. And yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't want to use the word scary, but it's very real. You yeah. know, you're, you're very acutely aware of the potential consequences of a good or bad decision. Sure. And so right now we're still at that point where we're very much just totally focused on the flight. You know, I've tried to take my camera up a few times around my neck and I've managed to take a couple of photos, but I, I always find myself coming back and saying, you know what, I'm just going to like <laughs> leave these extra things behind. I need uh, yeah. to focus on the flying. Yeah, I'm not quite there yet. You know, I am at a point where I want to focus on learning to fly really well and have it be a little bit more intuitive so that I can start focusing on some of the more complexity, some of the other complexities of the sport, like staying up for longer periods of time or flying away from the hill that I start on Mm -hmm. and going somewhere else. You know, it's like you basically have to understand all the complexities of piloting an aircraft. You know, it's not just steering your glider. It's understanding the weather and how that progresses over the course of the day. It's understanding and identifying what direction the wind is going, Mm. uh, you know, relation to where you're going, because those are two different things. I mean, it can get very complex. And you mentioned that some advanced pilots will even travel hundreds of kilometers, you know, in their journeys. Yeah. I mean, flights just in the past couple days, I think it was, um, a pilot, uh, back in Boulder Cedar, right. Who's also a pretty, pretty well-known climber. Uh, he just set the record for that particular site. He flew over a hundred miles from the site east in Colorado. So yeah, (laughs) in one go, he doesn't land. He's just Mm -hmm. up there that whole time flying and catching thermals and staying up. And I think it was, it was definitely over six hours. Yeah. I think his flight was close to seven hours, but I mean, pilots, I mean, people fly 500 kilometers plus in different parts of the world. Yeah. It's kind of progression of the sport to the upper levels. You know, the pilots that are the best in the sport, they do incredible things. I mean, they'll go and they'll fly over wilderness areas. They'll fly over places where you don't really have the option of landing sure. if things don't go right. And <laughs> it's just crazy to think about, you know, because again, I'm, we're so focused on just taking off and landing safely Sure, that it's like the idea of flying a hundred miles and being in the air for seven hours is just like, it's almost, you know, incomprehensible at this point, but it's something to strive for. I mean, the idea of being able to fly a hundred miles without any kind of power is really, that's incredible. Yeah. It's pretty wild. You both recently did a trip to Turkey. Talk about, and was that both of your first time in Turkey? Yes, that was. So talk a little bit about your experience in the country and like maybe the high point of your your flights there. When you were asking that question earlier about getting on your phone, I'd say that's the one place where I've consistently been able to do that. And that's just because the conditions there when we were flying were very smooth compared to some of the conditions that you deal with in mountains or even in the desert. I know that conditions there can be rougher, but when we were there, it was basically 30 minutes of flying around with, you could oftentimes take your hands off of the controls. It was that smooth. And so that were, that's like one 
one of the few times that Matt had a camera. I took my phone out and actually took photos. I always fly with my phone, but like I almost never touch it. And you're flying over the Mediterranean and Amazing. you can literally, I'll just talk about one of <laughs> My favorite moments there was a morning flight with Matt as we're coming into is about a 30 minute flight. Again, you're about 5,000 feet over the Mediterranean when you're coming in. And as we were coming into land, there was a pirate ship there that I guess goes on little cruises. We didn't end up doing the cruise, but it started playing. And you landed on the pirate ship? <laughs> I wish, but I did do a very <laughs> close <laughs> flyby while I was playing Pirates of the Caribbean no theme way. song. And yes, no yes. And that's I totally amazing. was like, this is the coolest moment ever. And then um, did you land on the beach? Landed right on the beach, oh, right so next good. to it. That's yeah, so good. And there, somebody th is there waiting with like a mint julep for you or something? I, I mean, mean, there are almost. There are bars on the beach there. You can literally land, put your wing in a pile and go and get a cocktail. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's amazing. That yeah. is, how fun is that? that I is... mean, it was a blast and it was a really interesting trip. I mean, we went there specifically to take what's called an SIV course, which has like a French uh, meaning. It's like situation involved right? Yes. <laughs> basically, basically you're simulating things that could go wrong with your glider while you're flying with instruction and learning how to correct those things in flight. Very cool. And so Aludanese, which is where we went, is a great place to practice that because as Amanda mentioned, you, you get a ton of terrain clearance. So you, you drive up this insane road with these taxi drivers that go so fast. I mean, they do not care if you're getting nauseated. They're getting to the top of this road in 25 minutes and then you fly off this mountain and you're, the summit is I think just over 6,000 feet above sea level and you're, you're landing at the ocean. So you're getting wow. 6,000 feet of terrain clearance, which is, there's not many places where you can get that. And with paragliding, actually the, the more terrain clearance you have, theoretically, the safer you are, you mm. know, the thing that's going to hurt you is the ground. So the further you are from the ground, it's a sudden stop, right? That's right. The problem. Yeah. So you fly out over the water and then you do these maneuvers, you practice them. And so we were mm -hmm. grabbing the lines on our paragliders and yanking them down and causing the wing to collapse. And then you fall out of the sky and then you learn what to do to correct that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. And you're over the water in case you do have to throw your back, your reserve. So we do fly every, like almost every pilot flies with one to two, sometimes maybe three. We fly with one um, backup parachute that if anything were to go wrong in your glider, you can't control it anymore. It's not flying over your head. You throw your backup reserve. Oh, wow. So we, neither of us did, but people who are on that same course did end up throwing the reserve and ending up in the water. Aludanese is one of the places that people go to do that. And there are boats there to pick you up. It's wow. as far as like practicing those skills. It's one of the best places to do that. I've always had on my bucket list to be in a helicopter when it does an auto rotation landing. <laughs> oh boy. Because it, it just, to me, when I first heard that that was how they do that and that was possible, it literally was mind-blowing. <laughs> At some point in my life, I would love to hop in with a great pilot and actually experience turning off the engine of a helicopter. Yeah. And it is just incredible to me that that works. But I would love to experience that. I mean, it seems worth the risk to see that happen just because yeah. uh, helicopters are amazing, but yeah. to experience that kind of thing. <laughs> they seem terrifying to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get sick. Yeah. Yeah. No, they do move around. <laughs> more than you'd think. Yeah. It depends on the conditions like anything, right? Yeah. yeah. And Aludanese is also one of the places where pilots um, go to train acro paragliding, which is a whole different thing. But basically they're there to do tricks over the water. So you can watch people do crazy things. They do infinity loops and wow. like all kinds of, so we'll have, send you some videos. Yeah. They have yeah. these very specialized wings for this that are they're much more reactive to, to inputs to the controls. But yeah, I mean, you literally, you're flying around doing whatever you're doing there, practicing your SIV maneuvers, just having a nice flight. <laughs> and you see people literally doing like head over heels, like tumbling for minutes or helicopter rotation where they're basically descending vertically and just spinning around. I mean, it's wow. pretty wild, the things you see people doing there. And what did you, as for a travel location, what were some of your high points from Turkey? We didn't do a whole lot of traveling around in the country while we were there. Uh, unfortunately, we had plans to travel a little bit more widely, but there was some State Department stuff that came up while we were there. And like all of the U.S. embassies were closed within the country because of some some safety concerns. Would that have materialized? We don't know. But, yeah. you know, we figured we can always go back. So we ended up just sticking around in Aludanese. That particular location as a place to travel to was great. It's a pretty touristy destination, though. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of British tourists there, a lot of German tourists there. Yeah, I mean, as a place to go, it was great. We were able to walk from our accommodations down to the beach. It felt super safe. Everyone was really friendly. Yeah, that was my experience there in Turkey. Yeah. I met, met some just wonderful people in a place called Trabzon. We needed to get some 
some service done to this little Suzuki Jimny we were driving across Central Asia and pulled in there. We actually saw a, a Defender 110 with an Expedition Exchange sticker on the back of it. And I just walked into the little shop and said, hey, I'd like to get this stuff done to my car. And they were immediately, whatever you need, they took care of us. We had food with them and it was just truly wonderful. And Constantinople was the same way and all spending time along the Caspian. And uh, without a doubt for me, it was it was a very safe and super enjoyable country to spend time in. Yeah. I mean, I think especially like Matt said, the other concern, part of the concern was that travel advisory. I also had a huge project deadline that I was yeah. working on. And that came up while we were there. It, I basically signed this project that was like dream client while we were there and I couldn't say no. So yeah. I was navigating that. And yeah, striking just, the balance. Yeah. That was one of the biggest challenges is because the time difference, getting yeah. meetings with my client, I would be really late at night there. And I just right. needed to not, not have to make that decision. Sure. Watching Matt go fly. That was yeah. one of the times where I was like, ah, hard to stay in the hotel room, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, definitely a rewarding project in the end. And I'm really glad we did it. So we're looking forward to going back. The food was Yeah, amazing. it's amazing. Their coffee's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. All, all the locals there were were excellent and yeah. um, just super nice, down to earth. And it was really fun kind of venturing out from Aludnis because it's this little kind of bubble of tourist activity. And pretty much the only Turkish people there are the shop owners. Sure. <laughs> and then if you drive out a little bit, you know, you you find more of the locals. And it was so fun to go to some of the restaurants within a, a bit of a radius. And sure. they were like surprised to see tourists showing up to sit down and eat. Yeah. But they were all just so nice. And like Amanda said, I mean, the food was fantastic. The food is really good yeah, there. We loved it. I mean, that's generally one of my favorite parts about traveling is no doubt yeah, food. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we ended up still there for about three weeks. So it was a great trip and affordable, amazing food. Definitely would go back. Like, yeah. Go if you have a chance. It's amazing. I think, I think that food is such an anchoring part of any travel experience because I've heard this. I don't, I've not studied it myself, but they say that olfactory memories are the strongest memories that we have. So if we can associate a beautiful travel experience with a great meal and all of the smells and the smell of the coffee and the, the spices and everything else. It seems like to me that it helps kind of embed that memory. I remember being in Marrakesh and having this, it was actually camel that was stewed with um, peaches and cinnamon and cardamom. And like, it is still, I remember it, all of the details, like where I was sitting in the room and the way that they were laying down, because it was, you were kind of laying on these, these couches. It's amazing how those food memories really reinforce the experience of what you're doing. I don't know that study, but I would agree with it because yeah. I definitely have similar experiences. Like a smell can bring you back somewhere and mm. that food was really good. Yeah. Uh, bring me back. Oh, it's also cool. a great way to break the ice, which I'm totally. sure you're aware of, but it's that thing that you can come to that's like devoid of politics or differences. And yeah, breaking you, bread. I was going to say, you know, when you can appreciate the food of a culture and they see that, like that's just a win for everyone right there and a good way to, if, to connect. It certainly is. Yeah. And a special thanks to this week's supporting sponsor, ARB. The latest episode of ARB Experiences stars Land Cruiser aficionado and my good friend, Kurt Williams. The Baja 1000 competitor has been a few places and seen a few things. His travels span Siberia, Greenland, and the Americas all the way down to Ushuaia, as well as several crossings of Australia. Kurt says of his adventures, anything can happen out there. Just one part not doing its job can ruin a whole trip. Investments in quality components pay back exponentially. You can watch Kurt's full story at arbusa.com. So to pivot a little bit um, with you, Matt, primarily focusing a lot of your editorial around the campers and trailers and just general camping and uh, vehicles fitted with campers. When we talk about looking to purchase a camper or a trailer, what are some of the things that you could advise the listener that you consider to be like the top things to look for in a camper, help people run down that process of, should I get a trailer or should I get a truck-based camper or should I get an RV? Essentially, we call them expedition campers, but walk people through like some of the things that you think are important in your research. Man, <laughs> this is a, a topic that you can get really deep into. I think one thing that is hard to get around is you have to kind of live it to figure out exactly what you need. You know, you can have an idea. For instance, Amanda and I uh, bought our, our RV that we lived in for almost three years. Um, it was a classic, a 1964. It was, we picked it for a few reasons. You know, one, it just had tons of character. It was 
like super cool, super cool. And, and we just fell in love with the way it looked, you know, the size was appealing. It was 18 feet long, you know, that's smaller than some of the longer extended sprinters and transits and things like that. So we wanted something that was uh, maneuverable that could get around, you know, ultimately for us picking a classic vehicle, it was a great experience and we really enjoyed it, but it was a little slow. Um, you know, driver fatigue was like through the roof, you know, yeah. doing 200 miles in a day was like, man, that was a lot of work. An expedition. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> you know, so I think, but, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself on that. You know, I think you have to come back to basically starting your, your search for your vehicle or your system with, you know, what is your intended use for it? You know, and you have to be really honest with yourself about that. Like, I think there are a lot of people that want to go out and buy that crazy expedition vehicle, you know, because why not? Like, if you can afford it, they're so cool. Like, yeah, yeah, I would love to get an earth roamer, but like, am I going to use that to its full potential? Probably not. You know, the reality of my life right now is, you know, I'm working a fair amount and I want to travel, but I don't need that kind of capability. So what are you compromising to buy that the cost of, of an earth roamer new now is about a half a million dollars. Yeah. You could travel full time for 10 years on that money. Yeah. Probably longer. Yeah. If you, for sure. In fact, um, a good friend of mine, Stefano Melgrati, who rode around the world on a, on a, uh, 250 Yamaha, his daily expenses were $28 a day. So do that math. Yeah. You're pretty much traveling for the rest of your life. Totally. On that kind of, on that kind of money and seeing all of the world. So I think, I think maybe you made the best point there of if you can afford it, which means if it makes no other impact to your travels, if you've made no other compromises, if it, if you are able to travel for as long as you wish and it includes an earth roamer, then that's awesome. Cause you're going to be super comfy. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and, yeah. and honestly, that's kind of an extreme example, right? Yeah. But I think the point I'm making is, you know, you have to be, again, you have to be realistic about your use case. So yeah. For us, the RV was great, but we found that what it lacked was capability. You know, we could take it on dirt, but we couldn't really take it everywhere we wanted to go. And now that we're paragliding, we're finding that we need to tackle some slightly more technical dirt roads to get to some of these launches, places that the RV just couldn't go. So we're leaning more towards a truck. So I think you have to start by saying, where do I want to go with this vehicle and can it get there? So that's a great place to start. Budget is a huge thing too. I mean, you pointed it out. And honestly, that was a big part of our decision too. You know, we looked at our living expenses at the time. And we kind of did the math and said, well, if we buy this vehicle for X number of dollars, like how many months of paying rent or paying a mortgage do we have to go before makes sense? And so that's kind of where we're at now. It's like, that is a consideration. You know, if you have a an income that is relatively stable, you can kind of say, here's what I can spend in any given month. And, you know, maybe buying that newer truck actually makes sense. Cause if you're not paying rent, maybe sure. you're actually paying less for the new truck yeah. that gets you where you need to go or the new camper van, you know? And most people that are paying rent are also paying a car payment on top of it. So if you can sure. combine them in just to one, then maybe your overall expenses are even lower. Yeah. But I'm, I'm maybe also making the assumption that you're traveling full time and, you know, that's, that's also not everyone's reality. You know, a lot yeah. of people are going to want to get an adventure vehicle that they can use on weekends that they can take for a week at a time, but you know, they're still going to maybe have a house or a place mm-hmm. that they come back to. And so, you know, you can go simpler if that's the case. I think if you get anything used and you're looking at a camper or a trailer, you have to start by looking at the roof. That is like the most important thing I've learned. That's one of the kind of weak spots in any camper or trailer. So get up on a ladder and look at the roof yeah. before you say like, oh yeah, this looks great. Cause the inside, maybe run fun. a, maybe run a hose over it for a while and see if it leaks. Totally. And, yeah. I oh, mean, that's smart. That was kind of the weak spot in our RV and we did some work to mitigate issues, but it was an old vehicle. It had been in pretty decent storage, but it had rust and it leaked yeah. at first. And we had to do a bunch of work on the roof, which is not easy work. To sure. Do. When you look at trailers, you've been using more of the trailers and featuring more of the trailers. What are some of the things that you like to recommend around a trailer purchase? I think with any vehicle, I think kind of that kiss, keep it simple, stupid. I yeah. think the simpler you can go with systems, the better off you are because it's less, it's less stuff to break. You know, I, I would always advocate for going simpler than more complex with your systems. And that's just, you know, yeah. learning from a, you know, experience we, in our camper, we had like 
we installed an on-demand hot water heater and that was great until we were in Moab and the temperature plunged when a cold front came through and, you know, our system broke because mm. the water froze and the pipes burst. So, and that's not a super easy thing to, to fix on the spot. It was sure. like we had to shut off our water and we had no access to our water tanks for a couple of days until we got it squared away. So I think to your question, you know, what should a trailer have? You know, a functional cooking system is great. I really like having a, a sleeping area that is not a convertible sleeping area. That's just like exactly. a dedicated bed. Uh, something exactly. you don't have to set up every day, you know, is really nice. The same goes for, uh, for a working space if you intend to work when you're on the road. And I think that's, you know, that's another thing you have to address when you're looking at what you want to get. Again, what am I going to use this vehicle for? If you're trying to have a job on the road, uh, we found that it's really a lot easier to be productive and to get quality work done if you have a dedicated working space. Sure. So that means not having to put away your kitchen so that you can use your kitchen counter as a desk. You know, we, yeah. we did that and you can get by, but I think it's a lot easier if you have a dedicated place to get that work done. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, on that? I mean, I think Matt's totally right. I had a flashback to that same moment in Moab when our, yeah, it hit 18 degrees at night and we didn't, had never experienced that, had no idea to like drain water or anything and our pipes exploded. And so we actually, I don't remember exactly what we did, but we couldn't replace that for a while because we had to get it delivered. There was nowhere to buy that exact system. I think mm. we were able to just route it without using the heating, but the whole, it took like over a month to get that actual actual heating element in our outdoor shower fixed. Sure. So definitely agree with that there. I think one of the biggest considerations for working on the road, I oftentimes would end up working in the bed. We initially, when we first built out the, like we redid the interior entirely of our camper van, which we didn't talk about, but have photos and show them to you. But we had a table and originally we actually had the same size as the original table and it was like a fold out table, but it ended up just not working for the space. It broke (laughs) and we never replaced it because it took up so much space. So we didn't end up having an actual like table to sit at. And oftentimes we would sit on our ARB fridge. So our little, (laughs) our fridge made a good seating area. So I would often either work from like the fridge or the bed and it would be hard to do that. Like it's too comfy or you just don't really have the work mindset. So one of our priorities for what we're looking for next is to have a place that is separate that we can work in so that we can get into that mindset and have it like physically separated, even though it's a small space to have like a physically separate place where now I'm in work mode, now I'm in sleep relax mode and keeping those separate. We're seeing that more and more Air, Airstream just launched their kind of like nomad, you know, professional nomad trailer. It's basically got a workstation built into what's the name of that yeah. model. That's the flying cloud 30. Flying cloud 30 yeah. <laughs> I just, I just wrote about it. So yeah, they yeah. did, did basically, uh, an office version of that. Yeah. I think the timing was great for them because so Perfect many more timing. people are finding out that they can work remotely. It turns out right. <laughs> they didn't have to go into an office all this time, but yeah, it's, it's clever. It's got a nice little desk kind of mm. nook in the corner with a, you know, an office chair and it's kind of optimized for getting work done. And I think that's super clever. I was just kind of racking my brain for stuff that's important because I think, you know, a lot of people who haven't lived on the road yet, they really want to know what's important. I think one thing that I didn't mention yet is having that ability to be truly off grid, you know, to be able to dry camp. So that would mean like a fairly robust power system and enough fresh water. Yeah. And I think that's super important these days because with just how popular traveling is getting, and especially during the whole pandemic thing, all of the national forests and national parks are seeing a lot more use. So it may be difficult to find a shore power hookup or Mm. a water hookup. So having that ability to be totally self-sufficient and go and find a BLM spot, I think, I think if you're thinking about getting a trailer or a camper, you know, don't neglect your capacity to stay off grid for a few days because it might be hard to find a camping spot if you haven't booked it out, you know, yeah. months in advance. That's what we're seeing. I know a lot of people have said that they'll go to a national park and there's just nothing now. It's it's booked out four or five months in advance. And that's so much of the spirit of overland travel anyways, is to get remote, to find those really beautiful distant locations. Um, on the trailer subject, one of the things that I found through the years is if you don't, if you can't retreat inside the trailer, the use case for it in my mind goes down considerably. It doesn't mean that there aren't use cases for trailers with tents on top of them. A good example of that would be you have a family of four and a forerunner, then those kind of fold out tent style trailers do make sense. But if it's a couple and or a single individual, then 
why not dedicate the trailer towards that retreat where you can open up a door or a hatch and crawl inside it to a dedicated bed. And I'm seeing more and more trailers, even some that are very small and very capable. Uh, Like for example, we just had that sniper trailer show up, right? Which has got a full-size bed that folds down. It also lifts up and you can have a a full-size kitchen seating area to work inside the trailer, but you're totally protected on the inside of it from the conditions. And you can add a heater and everything else. To me, that makes sense because now you're towing something that's like a very small off-road capable home. Whereas if the trailer just has the same roof tent that you could put on top of your vehicle, why not just put the roof tent on top of your vehicle and save all of that expense and weight? Backing up a trailer is always a consideration too. So Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think, you know, a trailer that doesn't provide sleeping quarters, I'm not going to say it's useless. There's, you know, there's a person change. Yeah. Right. There's a person that that's perfect for, you know, and there are instances where that's totally fine. Like nice summer, you know, adventure where the weather's perfect, you know, like that slide out outdoor kitchen and rooftop tent. That's Mm -hmm. fine. And that's maybe even better. Right. You know, it's like, it's hard to keep a trailer cool in the summer (laughs) off grid. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest advantages to a trailer or a camper is having that kind of bulletproof living quarters. Like we've been in the RV when it's just dumping rain or snow and you are so thankful that you're not in a tent. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. (laughs) I know some of these tents are like, they're pretty weatherproof. I've I've heard from people who've been in crazy weather with them and they say like, yeah, I stayed dry, but being within some sort of rigid shell. Yeah. And it seems like the cost of the trailer with the soft tent on top of it are usually very close to the cost of like a teardrop where you have hard sides and a hard roof and a door that you open and it has a fan on the inside and it pulls in, you know, fresh air and just seems like that from my perspective, that looking at a trailer, it should be something you can retreat inside of uh, as opposed to kind of live on top of or around, which at that point, why not just put the tent on top of the car and save a bunch of money. So yeah, I think you're kind of right on it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, of course it's my opinion, which doesn't mean anything, but in my experience, that's been something to look out for is what's the advantage of the trailer? What can it do that the car can't? Sure. Um, and if you can go inside it or maybe like the sniper where you're sitting, you know, at a dinette and you can work or like the Airstream or any of those other quality teardrop style trailers for sure. The cool thing too is one of the biggest advantages with any trailer is that you can detach it from the vehicle. Yeah. Right? Paying a whole lot of extra for a super off-road capable trailer you know, you have to decide if that's the right call for you. For me, I would rather pay for a trailer that I could get inside of, like you were saying, versus one that I can haul way into the backcountry because it's like, I can just park the trailer somewhere reasonable, detach yeah. the truck and then still go out. There. Go do a day trip up yeah. into the mountains. But that's, that's yeah. me, you know, maybe there's someone that really just like getting way back there with the trailer yeah. is that's the thing they want to do. And that's what you want to do. Then get that, that super high clearance one. Yeah, totally. Yeah. One of the things that we love to ask on this show is favorite books that you would recommend to our listeners. I have learned so many great books from podcasts that I listen to um, that many of them have been very transformative for me. So Amanda, what would you say is your top couple books that you would recommend to friends? Yeah, it's such a hard question. I'll just talk about one that I found like at a really good time as far as this kind of transition for me in my life. And as the alchemist, you probably Mm. have heard this one before. It feels a little cliche to be honest, but it found me right when I needed it. And yeah, we can talk now about living in the camper for three years, but when we were actually making that decision, it was a big decision for me. And like one of the craziest, most life-changing things I'd ever done. I grew up in a town where like the expected path was that you would go to college and then get a job probably as a lawyer or a doctor or maybe get a PhD, like a very high performing path. And I followed that path for a long time. I grew up, I went to an Ivy League school. I ended up in Silicon Valley working in tech, which that's not a doctor, but it's now it's kind of up there (laughs) at this point. And um, I found myself just not fulfilled. It wasn't the path that was for me. And Mm. I was questioning that a lot. And every time I'd bring that up, people would ask me, what you're leaving YouTube? Are you crazy? And that book just made me feel like, yeah, I mean, there are different paths for different people. And this is my journey. I just remember being like settled. It helped me feel uh, accepting of what the path I was taking at the time. So that's one of the ones I'll put out there. Yeah. It's amazing how much energy we can spend trying to accomplish things that we don't really want for people that we don't really like. It's amazing how much energy we lose in that pursuit, right? So, yeah, Amanda, she had this great idea, which maybe I'm like giving the idea away, but. (laughs) 
it's this art idea of, you know, asking people to consider whose dream they're building. Oh, yeah. Uh, And I think it it really plays at like the tech scene in San Francisco specifically. You know, you've got people who are giving 60, 70, 80 hours of their life a week to building an app so that someone else can put a lot of money in their pocket. And sometimes these things aren't really, (laughs) they're not really services or products that are doing much good in the world. You know, they're elevating the quality of life for people who are already privileged. Yeah. So- I don't know when she told me that it like that has stuck with me. I think about that sure. all the time. Any other books come to mind, Amanda? That's the top one for now. Nice. I'll let you know if I think. About okay. <laughs> awesome. We can add it to the show notes for sure. How about you, Matt? I would just say anything by Edward Abbey. Uh, oh yeah. Specifically sure. desert solitaire. I mean, that's like kind of his classic work that probably a fair number of people here are familiar with, but uh, you know, if you're new to the outdoors, playing in the outdoors, adventuring, that's a, just a really great one. It's about his time as a, uh, a park service employee. It's just the way he writes is is really vivid. His descriptions, some of his other stuff is just really fascinating too. He was like a very big critic of expansion for the sake of expansion. Yeah. Monkey Wrench Gang is another one by him that I absolutely love. That one's a little bit, it's interesting because it's fictitious, but it's got a lot of elements of sure. nonfiction in it. You know, I think that that had something to do with the earth first movement. Yeah. It's just, he's a fascinating writer and just his take on things. He's really not afraid to say what he thinks, which, mm. you know, sometimes I find myself reading him and, and I like him, but I, <laughs> I read stuff that he says. And I'm like, man, you know, if he was still around, it's the way he speaks sometimes is not so PC. And yeah. He's definitely, you know, as a human, you know, has things that I can take issue with, but I think overall his ideas about the importance of preserving wilderness of preserving wild places is yeah. something that we really need and we should really be paying attention to. And he's just, when I read his, his work, it gets me fired up, you know, it's. And he, he loved doing what we love to do. He was yeah. an overlander for sure. Oh, I yeah. mean, his travels in, well, maybe that's how you ended like being drawn to Southern Arizona, right? Or to Arizona in general, that was his, that was his playground. And if you drive along the El Camino del Diablo, there are many places that he talks about in organ pipe and all of that. And one of the stories about Edward Abbey that I found so fascinating was he, he passes away and all of his buddies steal his body. Like this, they had all planned it, including him ahead of time. And they steal his body and they take him out in the desert and bury him in an undisclosed location. Like you could not pull that off anymore, but they (laughs) somehow were at that perfect moment in history that they could still steal a body bury it in the middle of nowhere and get away with it. None of his buddies ever gave up the location. There's ideas about where he's at. Um, so maybe, maybe that's a next trip for you. We, we'll get a vehicle yeah. lined up and you go um, walk in the footsteps of Edward Abbey. I picture him like laughing in his grave, just like, you're never going to find me. Cause <laughs> yeah. he's probably somewhere very obscure. Yeah. But yeah I hope no, so. That, that's, that's the thing that's fascinating about it. I love it. Yeah. No, that's, that story is awesome. I mean, it's just like speaks to who he was. And, and one other book that I'll mention that I think is is a worthwhile one to read if you like him and if maybe read some of his material, but it's a book called Postcards from Ed. Okay. And it's actually a collection of some of his personal correspondence with friends and family members and also a bunch of his responses to editorial and magazines and newspapers. And he is just <laughs> so sharp with his responses. But that is like the responding to the original haters. Oh god. The haters of his day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's like he doesn't hold anything back. And it's just wow. it's really Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to, you got to pick who you mince words with. I think Edward Abbey is quite the sword yeah. with, yeah. with the pen, right? So he really is. And I mean, he's like just pretty brilliant guy too. I mean, yeah, he usually has an answer for anything that has to do with the outdoors and conservation and wilderness. He has something or a few things to say about it. So. Yeah, that's great. And which I think is a nice segue into you two have both spent some time uh, becoming uh, certified with Leave No Trace. You are both leave no trace instructors and you've spent energy around that cause, which I think is so important uh, today more than ever because of the amount of people that are in the backcountry. Um, and as overlanders, we not only have the responsibility for how we use the vehicle, which is typically going to align with tread lightly, but we also have the responsibility of being backcountry campers as well and hikers and with uh, native lands and with Aboriginal sites as well. We have a lot of responsibility 
responsibility as overlanders because we see all of those things and we touch all those things in some way. So let's maybe talk for a few minutes about with the explosion of overlanding and the number of people that are getting into the backcountry, what are some things that we can do as overlanders to reduce our impact to these beautiful places that we love and want to come back to? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a great question and there's a lot we can do. There's so much we can do. First off, it's it's like learning what Leave No Trace is. So you can easily go to the website and look up the seven principles and kind of just get an introductory level of what uh, Leave No Trace is. And it's, it's a framework. So it's not going to give you the answer, the number one answer all the time. It's a, a framework to think about how you're what your impact is on these spaces and how perhaps you can leave less of an impact. Mm. That's the whole framework. I think the first principle, for example, is plan ahead and prepare in the context of things. This is an important one for overlanding because we want that balance of like freedom and being able to find a new place and explore an adventure. But oftentimes if places are crowded, there might not be campsites that are established that are available. And if you don't you know, find out how many sites there are or potentially have a backup in mind of where you can go if this first site or second site or third site doesn't work out, then you might be thinking it's okay to kind of create a new site or go off road. (laughs) Exactly. Go off road here. And that's definitely one of the things that we're seeing happening right now where more people are getting outside, which is incredible but just not knowing the capacity of the places that we're going to. And there is a limited capacity. There are a limited number of of vehicles that can fit there or humans that can be there. So I think that's a great place to start. Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent place to start. I think dispose of waste properly, which is another one of the principles is, is awesome. And I think it's almost even more applicable to the overlanding community. We have this amazing resource, which is our vehicle, right? Like when you're on foot, your capacity to carry trash out to to leave things better than you found it is somewhat limited. But when you have a vehicle, you have you just have so much more capacity. So that can start with not leaving your own trash behind, um, yeah. and it can expand to removing trash that other people leave behind. Um, and I think within that category, something that maybe is squeamish for some people to talk about, but you know, using the bathroom in the backcountry. I think all overlanders should get themselves some sort of a portable toilet solution that mm-hmm. they carry on their rig. You almost there's almost no excuse to be digging a hole in the backcountry and pooping in it. Now that is how Leave No Trace would educate us to you know dispose of human waste properly. And again, it's a framework, so I'm not saying this is the only way. Yeah, like if you're on a motorcycle, that's not feasible, or it's much more difficult. Yeah, I but mean there are got, there are wag gotta, bags, you know, yeah, like sure. there are solutions. Um, yeah, it's and, more difficult. Maybe. And you know, I think it comes also back to plan ahead and prepare. It depends on the environment you're in. You know, mm-hmm. some environments are are more capable to deal with human waste than other ones. So like here in Arizona and in the Mountain West the high desert. It's not an environment that is that really deals well with human waste. It's it's very dry out here. And so things don't decompose very quickly. You know, so I think like a five gallon bucket with compact, you know, trash compactor bags and a seat that snaps on and a little bit of a something to add to the bag to keep things yeah, manageable. manageable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, is a really easy thing to do. It'll save you time digging holes in the backcountry. And then you just, you know, you you wrap all that up, you take it out with you and, and you leave so yeah, you put it in your trash room on the spare tire. Yeah, and next it doesn't thing even you know, have to go inside your rig. You know, yeah. put it up on your roof rack, whatever. Yeah. But um, you know, it's it, it doesn't take a lot to do that, and can really help some of these places. I mean, like the Moab area sees so many people, and if you think about every person that's visiting and having to dig a hole once or twice yeah. a day. I mean, it's like, where does that all go? <laughs> yeah. A little uh, pro tip for those that are listening. If you take that wag bag and you stick it in like an ammo can on the roof rack and it sits out in the sun in Arizona <laughs> Ooh. for a couple days, um, make sure you pl- again, plan ahead. Maybe not the roof rack. Don't <laughs> yeah. listen to me. No, no, no. I think that there are times when the roof rack works, but in my experience, um, there was times that it didn't work. So, but it, these are all good things to talk about. And I, one of the things that I really like about leave no trace and tread lightly. These are apolitical organizations. They're not saying that this is left or right or whatever. It's just, we all grew up with the idea of let's leave these places better than we found them. That is, it's that simple. It's, it's just the extension of the golden rule. Like be a good human. Like let's, we're going to these beautiful places. Don't you want your grandchildren to see them just as beautiful as you do? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the whole framework of them is this is not a political thing. It's not even a environmentalist thing. It's just something very practical of let's leave these pretty spots 
that we may want to come back to in 10 years. Let's leave them better when we leave. And I think that your idea around the trash is such a great one. We've talked about that before on the podcast is just have a a good size trash bag with you. Not only pack up all your own trash, but find any trash that you can in the campsite. You know, there's been very well-documented studies that if you can make the place look clean, it will stay clean longer. Even someone who is less inclined to do that when they come to a clean campsite, they are much less likely to leave trash behind. Whereas if they come to the campsite and it's trashed, they are going to be far more inclined to just throw that LaCroix can out into the pile of all the other ones. Sure. Um, whereas if we can clean up the campsite, we're giving it a better chance the next time a group shows up. Speaking of groups, and this is kind of the last thing that I want to include on this because I do think that this topic needs to be covered in more detail. But one of the things that I'm seeing in our communities is larger and larger groups of overland travelers. Most of these campsites in the backcountry can handle two, three, on rare occasions, four or five vehicles. If you're traveling in a group of 15 people, just ask yourself, why would uh, would I do that when the backcountry is not set up to handle that size of a group. Uh, now, if you do a lot of planning in ahead of time and you know that I can get from this big group site to this next giant group site, or I'm going to camp on the playa where it could handle a group of a hundred, um, then that makes a lot more sense. But I think when we're seeing groups of 20 go across the Mojave road and shoving a bunch of trucks into small campsites, they get slowly and, and incrementally larger terrain gets damaged and then they get shut down. The forest service or the BLM will just come in and put it, this campsite's closed because it's now a, a trash heap. So yeah, totally. And that's really unfortunate for all of us. It is. And I think that if we just, if if we take a little bit of responsibility as a community, then we can improve the outcomes and the likelihood that we get to continue to access these I mean, places. That's the thing with anything that takes place in, you know, on public lands and the outdoors. I mean, the amount of infrastructure and federal employees that are out there to help manage these sites mm-hmm. is so limited, you know, and I think we almost have to just think of ourselves as like a self-regulating group. We kind of have to approach it in that way. We have to, we have to take the initiative. You know, it's again, it's not, shouldn't be politically motivated. It's not about, you know, who you vote for. It's just about this resource that we all love um, and taking care of it. And if you think about that group of 20, you know, if they divide up into five groups to camp and if every one of those cars picked up two pieces of trash, like think about the positive impact it could have. I mean, I I know I haven't participated in it, but I like the gambler 500 is always like in the back of my mind just because I think the culture of it seems super interesting. Yeah, for sure. And they do a lot of cleanup work. I didn't realize, but it's just really refreshing because I don't always think of like the four wheel drive overlanding community being a community that's really concerned with that. But that just has totally changed my outlook on that. And um, it's cool. I mean, they haul out like, I see them hauling out like wrecked cars and boats and just like truckloads. Yeah. The most random stuff. Um, And so that's so cool. So that, that could be like a really awesome group of people to look to. Uh, They organize cleanups everywhere, like throughout the the year. It's not just when they're doing the the race. So yeah. And maybe that's the way to do it. If it's a little bit bigger group or your club has that 10, 12 members or whatever that you put some kind of a charter behind your trip of like, okay, we're going to do this to make this place better when we leave it. I think those are all ways to, for us to take responsibility over our own, own activities. So yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing just to chime in with this last point is around how we talk about leave no trace and there's a lot of great resources on, I'll send people back to leave no trace. So um, definitely go there for more resources, but just that's leave no trace.org. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times when you start learning about these things, you get very passionate about it, which is a great thing, but then you have to remember that not everybody has the same level of education as you do, and they're not at their same leave no trace journey. And so the way that you bring these topics up to others who are out in public lands, there's a lot to learn there about how you communicate with people. And again, it's a framework so there are Matt's suggestion to carry out your human waste is probably something we should all try to, that should be our standard that we're reaching towards, but not everybody knows about that. Not everybody has been taught. Not everybody is um, aware of the science behind things and just trying to get people where they are. If yeah. you did want to have a conversation with someone, there are resources again on Leave No Trace about how to approach these things. If things, if your conversation isn't going well, then you know there's only so much you can do and leading yeah. by example is always the best starting point. So. The best starting point is always us and our own actions. I remember when I was pretty involved with Tread Lightly, a lot of the training that I got with Tread Lightly was how to have those conversations with other four-wheel drivers of like, look, if we keep making all of these new trails, 
they're going to shut this whole thing down and none of us get to have any fun. It's that simple. It's just like that there's consequences for our behavior, but it's, it is a difficult thing to have a conversation about uh, because people can be intimidated by that or offended by that. And the last thing that we want to do is our own version of some very poorly constructed virtue signaling towards some other human. I mean, I make mistakes every single day that I'm worthy of being judged for. So the last thing that I want to do is judge others for their own actions when they're not really trying to be bad. But that's the great thing about a platform like this podcast or like Expedition Portal and Overland Journal and all of the other great organizations that are out there is that if we can just raise the conversation a little bit of like, hey, let's just try to keep access to these trails. This is where we want to go. Let's keep them open for a little bit longer. So those are awesome points, both of you. I appreciate you both. you both sharing that. So a lot of stuff has come up in like the last couple of years where people are actually using the framework to shame others yeah. for trying, but not quite hitting maybe the highest mark that yeah. Others are. And that's the last thing we want to do. I mean, we all love the outdoors and we want to encourage people to, to play out there. Yeah. And if if we give people a hard time for trying, yeah, you know, you're gonna turn them away. And and as Amanda said, everyone's on their own journey. You kind of have to meet people where they're at and maybe offer some education. But you know, we never want to make people feel bad about trying. Totally. Any form of virtue shaming or signaling like that is always a zero sum game. No one wins. Yeah. The person that's signaling, you can tell that they're signaling and then they look pathetic. And then the person who's being signaled against, now they feel bad about themselves. Everybody has lost in that. So let's make it a positive sum game of like, start with ourselves, with our own family, with our own community, our own club, try to make things a little better. And believe it or not, it's all going to make a difference. So and I think in a very positive way. So you're right. We don't want to, to start shaming others for trying. <laughs> like yeah. what a terrible thought. But yeah. th- I think that's where the world's come to in some ways. It happens a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, social media and the internet gives people a platform to say whatever they want almost anonymously. People that, you know, are having a bad day, sometimes they just go on there and they they let loose. And you know, it really causes a more, a lot more problems than, than yeah. it provides solutions. Yeah, it just shuts down the conversation yeah. and then no one's learning anything. Exactly. We're just talking over each other. Right. So thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. I have, it's been such a pleasure to get to know you, Amanda and your skills. Thank you so much for all of your insights that you've given us around YouTube and the things that you do professionally. And then Matt, I mean, you're just a total rock star, man. You, <laughs> you have just done such a, an awesome job on Expedition Portal and And for those that are listening, when you go on to Expedition Portal, you'll oftentimes see Matt's name on the bio for the article that you're reading. So this is the guy that's that's making all that great content happen and working closely with the other editors on Expedition Portal to to make that content so solid. And and Matt also contributes regularly to Overland Journal as well. Uh, Where can people find out more about the two of you and your travels and your upcoming journeys? Yeah. So the best place to learn about me and my business is is amandawinther.com. I also have an Instagram at amanda.winther. I mostly share fun travel stuff on the Instagram. So if you want some yeah. of that, you can see paragliding photos or a lot of photos that Matt takes that I, I post because he's the photographer. <laughs> um, we also have a an Instagram together. It's being used as much, but you can see some of our previous travels at van.project. So if you want to see the camper van, all of that is captured there. Yep. Yeah. I guess my personal Instagram account is m dot b dot swartz and like amanda said i mean i mostly just share photos from, that's a great account though yeah <laughs> it's very stuff yeah, your do- like your dog is so charming like what's your dog's name again royal royal he's rad yeah. he's great i love like you had this one like perfectly framed backlit model photo of of your pup he was, it was such a great photo we don't have a human child but we have, we have that child oh, so nothing wrong with fur babies <laughs> yeah. nothing wrong with fur babies he's front and center on there, so. <laughs> awesome <Yeah. laughs> well thank you guys again so much for being on the podcast and we will talk to you all next time. Excellent. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thank you.